Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Even when he's in London, he's here. <laughs> anyway, I was moved by something for which I had no words in it, and it was in Mass. I found Mass to be magical. And it was clear to my young mind that something profound was happening there, and no matter how much the Sunday school teachers tried to explain and contain it, I recognized it for what it was, a mystery. As a kid, I was smitten with mystery. And I wanted to be an integral part of that mystery. I loved going to church, but what I really wanted was to be a priest on that altar, consecrating the Eucharist and mediating God's love for his people. I saw no reason why that wasn't possible. Sure, it was clear that all the priests were men. As much as I wanted to be one back then, I wasn't a boy. But Vatican II had the adults in my world thinking that the church was clearly moving in a logical, progressive direction, And by the time I would be old enough for seminary, of course they'd let me in. So I figured I'd better get a head start on that path. Around the age of nine, I knew I wanted to be an altar server, but they didn't let girls do that back then. Instead, I requested of our pastor a moment to ask if I could step up to do one of the readings one Sunday as a lector. Women were reading from the pulpit quite regularly, but thanks to Vatican II, and no doubt I could do that. But Father Cassidy disagreed. He wasn't unkind, but he was clear, you're too young and scripture is too important. Try again later. I didn't bother trying again later. I received his rejection for exactly what it was. And as it turned out, that was just a trial run for the bigger blow rejections awaiting me down the road. Before I experienced those rejections, though, I had a powerful experience of inclusion and expansion. Right before high school, I was confirmed. That's the rite in the Catholic Church where it's said the Holy Spirit comes to strengthen one's faith for the long haul. And among my eighth grade classmates, I had perhaps a singular experience. There were no words for it. And years later, I realized it had been a peak mystical encounter. I felt joy and love like I hadn't known before and truthfully haven't known since. It was as if everything in this world seemed surreal. And I was one with it. The things that seemed important in this life no longer did. And feeling disembodied and freer than ever, I had some kind of opening to whatever was beyond. If I'd wanted to be a priest before, it paled in comparison to how much I wanted to go that route now. Only now I wanted to live that out in a monastery, to be in a place where the mystics lived and the rhythm of life was entirely focused on the spiritual. And even if that life wasn't filled with mystical experiences, I said out loud to God that if I never in my life had another experience like that, the one I'd just had would be enough to carry me through. So this sort of high stayed with me for about a week, but then surprisingly to me, it began to fade away. It gave way for the next four years to the urgency of things like band camp, falling in and out of love and college applications, all very earthy embodied experiences. I couldn't seem to get that high back. And for the first time in my young life, Church was no longer compelling. I mean, I continued going to Mass and doing what was expected of me. Part of it was because that confirmation experience had me convinced of what I'd been taught, that the Catholic Church was the one true church. 
After all, that experience was conferred as a Catholic sacrament. How else to explain it? And part of why I kept going to mask was risk mitigation. While there wasn't much thrown at me in the way of hellfire and brimstone in those days, the rules were the rules. If you didn't go to mass, it was a mortal sin. If you die in a state of mortal sin, you're going to hell. It didn't seem like a bad idea to keep going, if primarily for insurance purposes. <laughs> and college was altogether another battleground, and I was doing the kinds of things that college kids do that aren't exactly holy, and you can likely guess what most of those things were, but the worst of those things was ditching Mass on Sundays. As a cradle Catholic and one who still had this nagging pull toward what felt like a priestly vocation, I had no choice but to carry a sense of guilt within me. But when you're 21, you feel fairly certain that you have plenty of time to get to confession before you die and go to hell. I hadn't given up on religion, though, not by a long shot. I majored in history, and with access to so many resources on campus for the first time in my life, my studies began to drift more toward religion, not away from it. I read the classics, of course, like St. Augustine's Confessions and St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, long considered the most comprehensive summary of all the teachings of the Catholic Church. If you want to know God, if you want to know about God, well, that's where you look. Aquinas had all the answers. That's not all I was reading, though, and the new perspectives I encountered blew my mind. My first course on biblical exegesis, which if you don't know, that's a deep dive into the meaning and intentions, <clears throat> into the meaning and intentions of the authors of scripture that, when done right, lays bare countless inconsistencies, had me questioning everything. There were other gospels too, in case you didn't know. The Gnostics, hidden for centuries and only discovered some 40 years earlier, referenced the leadership of women in the early church and hinted at all of us being carriers of the indwelling divine, not just fallen sinners who needed to be saved. These were radical ideas to me, but when I also read the works of medieval mystics like Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and whoever the author of The Cloud of Unknowing is, I realized these weren't new perspectives at all. They just weren't mainstream. And when I encountered a treasure trove of female theologians like Elaine Pagels, who spoke of the egalitarian and even socialist nature of the early Christian communities and of God as suffering with us, not for us, wow. Did these 20th century women see things differently than the likes of Augustine and Aquinas? Of course, the official line for my so-sure-of-itself Roman Catholic Church that seemed to be regressing from the progressive direction of Vatican II was that none of this was approved and much of it was heretical. And Father Richard Rohr calls this mouthy certitude. According to Rohr, speaking of his own church, without naming it directly, mouthy certitude is filled with bravado, overstatement, quick dogmatic conclusions, and a rush to judgment. People like this are always trying to convince others. They need to get us on their side and tend to talk a lot in the process. Underneath the mouthiness is a lot of anxiety about being right. Mouthy certitude often gives itself away by being rude and even unkind because it's so convinced it has the whole truth. As interesting and refreshing as I found all of what I was learning back then, I was still bound by the mouthy certitude of the church. I really wasn't ready to declare myself some kind of New Age heretic. In fact, I had bigger, more personal issues to face down. I decided to marry my college boyfriend, but at the same time, I was finding myself drawn to some of the women I'd come to know and befriend on campus, drawn to them in ways that were not okay with me, and certainly not okay with God. I don't know that I really believed that God had a problem with it, but the church said he did, 
said it loud and clear in a 1986 document. The homosexual has a more or less strong tendency ordered toward an intrinsic moral evil, and thus the inclination itself must be seen as an objective disorder. I remember reading that in high school and thinking, that sounds pretty harsh. Glad I'm not one of them. But now, what if I was? What if what the church said was true? I couldn't even begin to consider going down such a path. I pushed forward even harder toward my wedding day, which, if nothing else, kept me distracted and kept the troubling thoughts at bay. I graduated college, got married a month later, and went off on a short honeymoon to the mountains to drink beer, play golf, and finally enjoy God-approved sex. When the phone rang late one night in our hotel room, my 19-year-old brother, an absolute best friend in the world, had been killed in a car accident, and we needed to come home. To say that my world was turned upside down by this news would be an understatement. I felt the ground get yanked from under my feet, and it rocked me to the core. I was angry, I was despondent, and I was beside myself. I was even briefly suicidal for no reason other than I missed my brother. I loved him so, so much, and I just wanted to be wherever he was. For months, I spent plenty of time in church trying to find comfort, peace, or answers, and none of it came. No peace came at all. This church and this God, they were failing me. I was being presented with my first opportunity to experience what St. John of the Cross wrote so beautifully about in the dark night of the soul, but all I could think about was my fear that my brother, a generous, loving, full-of-life kind of guy, but hardly a paragon of Catholic virtue, had died and gone to hell. But then one night, about six months later, my brother came to me in a dream. It felt like more than a dream, actually. Again, I cannot find words for it. But it was the first instance following my brother's death where I had a sense of peace. I came away from the experience convinced that Matt was perfectly fine, and according to him, I had things to do here in this world, and I'd best get on with them. Now, he didn't tell me what those things were, so I had to figure that out for myself. I decided to change some things up religiously because on the heels of finding no comfort in the church of my upbringing, I was pretty pissed at the Catholics. Buoyed somewhat by my sense that if Matt wasn't in hell, maybe I wouldn't be either, I pushed past my deep fear of leaving the one true Catholic church and joined the local Episcopal parish to commence a discernment process for the Anglican priesthood where women were being ordained. And without much contemplation or reflection, I got busy planning a clerical career. I started and ran the youth ministry while looking into various seminary programs and brushing up on my Episcopalian theology. I preached on occasion. They not only let lay women read, they let lay women preach. I was also the youngest person ever elected to that parish's vestry, the Episcopal term for a church board or a parish council, and I think I remain to this day the only person to have ever given birth twice during her three-year vestry term at Emmanuel Episcopal Church in Southern Pines. And it was the giving birth thing that gave me pause. Despite one kind priest's reassurances at a retreat that he knew I was supposed to be ordained, somehow he knew this, I couldn't see how it would be possible for me to do justice to the early stages of parenthood and ordained ministry simultaneously, not to mention the cracks were already beginning to show in my marriage, and in all likelihood, there would be little support for me from my spouse, even if I tried. So as the demands of parenthood and a new career in education claimed most of my focus, I put my prospects for ordination on the shelf. I kept up my studies, but without all the busyness of Episcopal parish life distracting me, the old mouthy certitude voices of my church of origin, origin excuse me, began to creep back in. 
deconstruction literature appeared on my reading list, but it wasn't landing in a helpful way. For instance, I read John Shelby Spong, the Episcopal bishop who claimed that the resurrection wasn't a literal physical event, and I thought, oh no, this guy has gone too far. It was kind of a breaking point for me, in fact. As divorce loomed and I began to feel like the Episcopal church was little more than a watered-down version of the Catholic one, I even began telling myself that it wasn't dogmatic enough. I started to drift away from there, too. Spiritually, I was lost again. The path of least resistance eventually led me back to the Catholic Church, where my family had faithfully remained. Calling myself a reluctant revert, I wanted, if nothing else, for my kids to benefit from the structure, the certainty, and the rituals that formed me in my childhood, and I was sure could only be found in that same church. I was lukewarm, though, and my kids saw right through it. Worse yet, I had begun to live a double life. On the one hand, there was the now single mom raising two boys while building a career path in education that I thought I'd be on for the rest of my working days. And on the other, there was the woman who had just come out to herself, quietly, furtively, taking long weekends far away from home with women I never introduced to the people in my life who mattered. It was early in this millennium and things were very, very different even just that short a time ago. By now, I was a school principal in a conservative county in North Carolina, and the blow that would have been dealt to my career would have been fatal had anyone gotten wind of who I was and what I was doing. It was very much a secret and very much a problem. Because by now, I couldn't square what the church was saying with what I was doing. Which meant I also couldn't really square what the church was saying with who I was. The rejection was becoming increasingly painful. And it went beyond my being gay. When Pope John Paul II put out his statement that the Catholic Church would never ordain women and that all Catholics must assent to this teaching, I was like, wait, what? Not only are you saying something with which I cannot agree, you're telling me that I must agree to it? How, I began to wonder, am I supposed to grow spiritually in a context where I'm told to say the sky is green and the grass is blue while absorbing the blow of being told that the cross I must bear is the fact that I carry within myself a more or less strong tendency ordered toward an intrinsic moral evil. And that even as I bear that cross, I need to do it quietly so as not to create scandal. This is what my church was telling me. Assent to what you don't believe and also hide who you are. All for the glory of God. Thank you very much. What made this so hard was that Christianity, even Catholicism, was still so bound up in my identity. Thankfully, I discovered the writings of a gay priest and theologian named James Allison, who particularly in his book, Faith Beyond Resentment, Fragments Catholic and Gay, spoke right to my soul and helped me begin to reconcile my faith with who I was. It was his insistence that we gay folks are called to rise above victimhood and see that it is always those on the margins who are the most prophetic. All the prophets, after all, have been marginalized by the powers that be. Jesus said it himself, no prophet is ever accepted in his hometown. Prophets aren't accepted in their home churches either. I had never considered that before, that being gay might be a unique opportunity for prophetic calling and witness, and it gave me great hope in the face of the institutional pronouncements. But it didn't liberate me. Allison didn't provide a guidebook for how to integrate that notion within the institution, and I hadn't quite shaken a nebulous fear of hell enough to officially depart that institution. Things were falling apart, but if I abandoned church, where would I go? Worse yet, how could I possibly give my kids a sure foundation of faith when my own was crumbling beneath my feet? This internal anguish went on for the better part of a decade. 
And then I met someone. I thought she was the one, in fact. I thought this so much that after about a year of getting to know each other, I took the great risk of telling my mom about her, and that was a great risk, then bringing her home for Christmas to meet my whole conservative Catholic family. We both made career changes and decided to build a business and a life together, and that's what originally brought me to Raleigh with my now teenaged sons. Those teenaged sons and I bounced around from parish to parish in the Triangle trying to find a parish home. Well, I was trying to find a home. They were not especially interested. Without having any kind of fear of hell drilled into them since birth, they both chose to quit going to Mass. I wasn't going to force them, but you know, I still didn't want them to go to hell. So we started having hard conversations. My older son wrote everything off as pure nonsense, and there was nothing I could say to convince him otherwise. My younger son kept pressing me to justify the faith. Why did God tell Abraham to kill his own son? Babies aren't born of virgins. And seriously, Mom, what kind of supposedly all-powerful father sends his son to die a horrible death so that we can get to heaven, but only if we believe in him, or else that father will send us to hell? I was not a skilled apologist, and I had no good answers, but boy, James was asking good questions. In the meantime, my partner seemed to be in just the opposite space. She was a native of the Baltics who had grown up under the thumb of communism in a country where all religion, including the Greek Orthodox faith of her family, was forbidden. She wanted to be baptized. Maybe I couldn't get my kids to see any sense, but I was happy to see my partner join the faith. You see, our relationship lacked depth and connection. So there was a part of me, that old magical thinking part of me, I guess, that assumed if she embraced my faith as her own, we'd have a better shot at a good relationship. Well, I'm not sure what the point of it all was, but it certainly wasn't for her to become a good practicing Catholic. I don't believe she ever went back to Mass after the Easter vigil during which she was baptized, and within weeks she dumped me for another woman we had both recently met. It was shocking in the moment, but considering our ultimate lack of connection, not really surprising. We had been in business together, we lived together, and my kids were about to move out and into a place of their own. There wasn't much that didn't fall apart for me at that time. In the face of this colossal loss, I didn't know what else to do besides rage some, lean very heavily on my good friends, and go to church. I spent a lot of time alone in a local chapel just talking to God, asking why. I went to Mass daily. I went to confession. I prayed my rosary. I prayed novenas that guaranteed certain outcomes. I did all the Catholic things that promise results. And of course, I got no results. Not the intended ones, anyway. What I did get, however, was the perfect opportunity again to inhabit the dark night of the soul. In his confessions, St. Augustine writes, you have made us yourself, O Lord, for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I decided to rest in God, whoever or whatever God actually was. I laid down the rosaries and the magic prayers. I stopped doing things to try and get out of my pain. I stopped asking why, and I surrendered. I continued to sit in the chapel, but I also sat on the porch, on the lakeshore, and in my corner chair. For several months, I sat with my pain, staying present and paying attention. Over time, peace and healing came. And it was clear that the peace and healing didn't come from the things I had been doing. They came from the way I had chosen to be. This was liberating and terrifying, because now, what to make of God? I was unmoored with this experience that did not align with my previous practices, so I picked up the old theology books again to see if I could place what was happening to me in some kind of context when I stumbled upon this bit of history. Not long before his death, 
Thomas Aquinas, who had written that Summa Theologica that I mentioned earlier with all of the answers, had a mystical experience that caused him to stop writing. In fact, he left that magnum opus of his unfinished. He told his secretary, the end of my labors has come. All I have written appears to be as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. When his friend begged him to finish writing, he insisted, I can write no more. I have seen things that make my writings straw. He stayed silent for the remaining three months of his life. It turns out Aquinas didn't have all the answers after all. In fact, he seemed to indicate that whatever all that was, it ultimately didn't matter. And suddenly, this was everything to me. If the most authoritative theologian in the history of Christianity saw his life's work as nothing but straw, well then, God had to be bigger than we can possibly know. The divine had to be something well beyond what words could capture. The great I am couldn't possibly be a God who prohibits women from being on the altar, who has plans to send the gays to hell, who even gives a shit about any of that stuff. In fact, that confirmation experience of mine right before high school, I was finally able to see that even though it happened in a Roman Catholic context, it wasn't a Roman Catholic experience. It was simply a mystical experience, an encounter with the divine that was way, way too big to be contained by something so ultimately narrow and small as an institutional church. For a few years more, I was in the spiritual wilderness, and it wasn't a bad place to be. And I'm sure that a lot of the folks at Common Thread can agree with that. I became comfortable again with mystery, becoming more and more like the child I once was, who was all about that mystery on the altar. As Richard Rohr says again, those who know always know that they don't know. That's the character of the mystic. The deepest truths, the most mystical of experiences are simply beyond words, beyond proving, and beyond any kind of rational certitude. Our present notion of God is never it, because if we comprehend it, it is not God. I'm gonna end this by touching on my most recent experience of mystical knowing, which hasn't been my own, because apparently when I told the divine way back when that my confirmation experience would be enough for the rest of my life, I got what I asked for. <laughs> it's been a treasured touchstone though, one that has served especially well for what I've been witness to most recently. When I met her, Maria identified as a non-theist, a skeptic who had long before jettisoned her own fundamentalist upbringing. That didn't mean she wasn't interested in spiritual growth. In fact, I'd never been with anyone who wanted genuine spiritual growth more. And much to my delight, she wanted to go down that path with me. We've been walking it earnestly, however imperfectly, for a few years now. In terms of our spiritual growth, this community in particular has been a godsend. No pun intended. Because God doesn't send us stuff. That's what that was a joke. <laughs> But over the past few months, Maria has been going through a season of profound personal deconstruction and radical transformation, much of it spiritual and even mystical and even Christian. It's not my story, it's hers, but it's been one of the greatest privileges of my life to witness my beloved bathed in a mystical knowing or unknowing, having the kind of direct mystical encounters with the divine that echo my own from 40 years ago. The old me could never have believed that some of the most profound spiritual experiences of my life would come via my non-theist wife, and the present me finds it hard to believe it would have happened any other way. Doug's been asking the question the past few weeks, are we Christian? Which begs of me the question, am I Catholic? Suffice to say, I no longer have papal or even priestly ambitions. I might still have a ministerial calling, 
but it's not one that would claim the need to insert itself as a mediator between God and God's people. I do consider myself Christian, and even Catholic, but in a transcendent way, in the way the often marginalized mystics have always known in their unknowing, not in the dogmatic, mouthy certitude way of the Vatican gatekeepers. Of course, I don't know exactly what this looks like, but it is my hope that in the years I have left on this earth, I can continue finding my way toward being an elder in our spiritual tradition, using my gifts to help people become again like children and fall into mystical divine love. Because if everyone could, even just once, have one of these peak, mystical, expansive, intimate, loving encounters with the great I am, I can say from direct experience, and if I wanted, even with mouthy certitude, what an absolutely transformed world this would be. And so, in Dwelling Divine, may we always be open to the growth that comes from losing our religion, embracing dark nights of the soul, and eventually finding our way. Amen. So, if you would, please prepare your offerings. We all give online now. Just go to the donate button at the top of our website, and when you go there, you'll see lots of options for giving. Whether you are here in Raleigh or somewhere else, like, this doesn't matter because the live stream's not working this morning, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> We can pretend. My hair later. later, okay. (laughs) Uh, If so, hi, Doug. Hi, Jack. Uh, We encourage you to take an ownership stake in the community. And remember, as Doug always reminds us, there is good return when we invest in spiritual community. We take our time, our energy, our love, and our dollars, and when we give them to the community, the community takes them, amplifies them, and gives them back to us in ways that help us to grow and to thrive. So, in a minute... uh, We're going to pretend to dismiss you all on the live stream, and we're going to do What Are You Thinking Here? And we hope that you, those of you who are seeing this, wherever you are, there's nothing to tune into today, so never mind. I'm just going to let the teleprompter, da-da-da-da-da, okay. Uh, I was was just about to say we had some technical hiccups last week with the online What Are You Thinking? Because I ran it, and we had hiccups, and I said, ah, we got it fixed today, and new hiccups. So um, nobody needs the password. Hold on. I'm new, totally new to this teleprompter thing, so, okay. And if you would, please put your hand on your heart. Oh, well, we're dismissing live stream, folks. Never mind. I do this after, what are you thinking, right? Okay, that's what we'll do. I'll come back. I'll come back and do this after, what are you thinking? Okay, thank you. Thank you all for listening to me. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you-